Shout out to the young engineers. There's room for growth. And I'll just say this as a mechanical engineer, the nuclear reactor is pretty much one of the most interesting machines I've ever been around. So it'll keep you intrigued for many years, trust me. Okay, well, welcome back. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm here joined today with Paul Marotta. Paul, did I get your name right? Actually, Marotta is fine. Marotta. So, yeah, don't worry gotcha. about it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Paul, Paul Marotta. Right. So, but I'll, uh, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself, and we can talk about your background and go from there. I'm sure. My kids all, and, and colleagues know that I love to speak about energy and nuclear power. I also do some work in the water and wastewater-related fields, too. So I guess the only thing I don't directly get involved with is growing my own food. But I'm an engineer by trade, a mechanical engineer by trade, and I started my career at uh, – actually, my academic career at a small college up in uh, – outside of Albany, Santa College, where I was a math major, and uh, moved on to uh, mechanical engineering in Manhattan. And from Manhattan, I was recruited by General Electric to go work at Knowles Atomic Power Lab up in Schenectady. So, yes, I was one of, at the time, 400,000 employees at General Electric, and the power system sector was a good part of that. And at the time, GE was deploying its boiling water reactors and so forth. But I was on the side of things for naval propulsion. So I won't be speaking about the details associated with that, uh, but suffice to say that they had an outstanding uh, uh, repertoire uh, and, and ability to train young engineers for uh, designing nuclear power plants. So that's where I started. Awesome. Now, Sch- yeah. yeah. Schenectady. I love the name. That's, that's upstate New York, right? Yeah, it's uh, about 10 miles north of, uh, of Albany, that area. So from there, I, I, I while working at GE, I, I did my master's part-time at Union College, and um, I was at Knowles for three years, and then went up to the Kesslering site and actually did some field engineering, some construction engineering, and some site modifications we were doing up there. And, I, and what was great about GE at the time is you could – they had this huge book – and if you had two years of consecutive good reviews from your manager, you could put in for any job in that book that was at a level. Oh, wow. that, yeah. So suffice to say, I, I had, I think in the time I was there, I averaged about two years per rotation. So I had a chance to get involved with things like thermal hydraulics, construction, emergency systems, safety systems, uh, finite element analysis for brittle fracture, all those things. In a very, in a real, relatively short period of time. So it was great work. Um, the only thing that bothered me is that I, the commercial reactor side of things, which a lot of folks transitioned to from propulsion was, uh, from the naval program was in kind of, uh, in disarray and more or less not going anywhere, pretty static. And, and so I decided to move on and, and I joined international paper and spent a number of years there in heavy industry learning capital projects, and, and I was a plant manager for a couple of years, things like that. And then I uh, probably was there for 14 years and then started in consulting. And, the, and what's funny is the area of consulting I got into was the environmental engineering side of things, 
Prani from Nuclear and Environmental Engineering. But, uh, uh, and that's one of the things that I'll leave for the young engineers. It's the approach is all the same. It's a good, solid, sound engineering approach. You just need to learn a bunch of new keywords and tricky phrases. So if you're not in the nuclear engineering area and you're thinking about do it, doing it, don't be afraid. Don't be dissuaded by the, the words. I mean, it, it all makes sense, and the engineering processes and procedures are all similar to anything you would apply anyplace else. So That's great um, feedback. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the nuclear power plant itself is one of those things that incorporates a lot of different entities from materials to high-level mathematics, solution um, codes, and things like that. Very complex analyses. So uh, if you're interested in technical work, it's a great place. It culminates a lot of those kinds of, of study areas, which is which is interesting. And, of course, the physics part of it is, is unique to fission power, of course. So that's pretty much how I got to where I am today. I started my PhD later in life. I started in 2008, and I was in uh, the mechanical engineering program at the University of Tennessee. As you know, they have a fairly strong uh, nuclear engineering department. Twists and turns along the way, I ended up uh, doing a dissertation that was finished in 2012, but I didn't really put it out on the street till 2013. And as you would imagine, it involves the augmentation of the light water reactor with uh, a new uh, advanced reactor fuel that's being developed, and you've probably heard about Trezo fuel. And the concept was basically, my dissertation was basically an advanced reactor superheater to take that more or less wet steam from a light water reactor, 300 degrees C, and superheat it to 600 plus degrees C and get the benefits of the superheating and so on and so forth. And it's funny, I just got a report, I get a monthly report from the University of Tennessee, and it is downloaded about once a day. And so since 2013, it's had close to 3,000 downloads. So somebody's interested. (laughs) Congratulations, people are reading your work. That's great. (laughs) <laughs> well, and and I take that, and it's from all over the world and different people, different places. So I take that as a, a positive sign that people see nuclear energy as something that has potential. And um, otherwise, why would they, you know, why would they continue to look look into kind of new ideas or creative ideas, twists and turns on existing technology? So um, that that kind of brings me to today. Okay. Don't think we mentioned it at the onset, but what what are you doing today? So you found me through Micronuclear LLC. Yes, sir. And <laughs> yes, yeah, so if you haven't been there, uh, www.micronucleartech.com. Uh, and, and Micronuclear formed uh, about four to five years ago. Uh, so I gave up my I gave up trying to fix light water reactors and uh, diverted my attention to this idea that I had around molten salt reactors, and I really was intrigued by the technology. And if you don't know anything about it, it's kind of like you take the inverse of a light water reactor where you have fuel rods and, and that are cooled by a flowing liquid uh, to actually uh, a molten salt liquid with the fuel dissolved in. So just basic nuclear uh, kinetics 101 to get a criticality. You need to have a mass, so you need to have a quantity of material, and it needs to be shaped appropriately. 
So in this reactor that I started studying, and it was a reactor that was designed, built, and operated in the 60s at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and it was called the Molten Salt Reactor Experiment, I became enthralled with that design. And so what happens is as you move this fluid through the system, you generate, when it gets to the proper shape in the reactor core, uh, you have fissions, and the fissions produce fission heat, and the heat moves with, there's no convection, the heat moves with the salt, and when when it leaves that space that has the right uh, buckling characteristics for geometry, it goes non-critical, it goes subcritical, theoretically, and um, it moves on to the heat exchanger directly. So it's a, a, a tremendously different than um, the conventional reactors in terms of complexity associated with the reactor core design itself. So that was intriguing. The molten salt, again, is intriguing as a substance. Uh, so I mentioned the limitation of that I was trying to fix with light water reactors in the 300 degrees C steam. Right. Um, so that's a wet steam. If you look at it, even at 1,000 PSI, for those of you that run a steam plant, that's horrible. I mean, the efficiencies are in the 30s at best. Right. So uh, to get superheated steam, um, you really need to and, – and the reason you can't with light water reactors is because of the temperature stack up that comes from the fuel, the temperature, the allowable temperature there, and it drops all the way down so you end up with 300 degrees steam. But the beauty of this molten salt is – you are no longer constrained by a coolant that has to be pressurized to 2,000 pounds per square inch to stay a liquid. You have this material, this molten salt, and it sounds really scary, but it's tremendous stuff, that can be sitting there on the desk at 700 degrees C, that's 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, and be at atmospheric pressure and just sit there as a stable liquid. No steam, no none, none of those things happening. And um, that simplifies heat transfer calculations. It simplifies, it reduces the wall thickness of the vessels that have to contain it from tens, uh, a foot thick down to yeah. an inch or less. And basically, you got the... So anyways, suffice it to say, I'm going off on the deep end here, but the molten salt reactor intrigued me. Now, um, it's not like... Like micronuclear, it's not like I started uh, with a clean slate of paper, but as I started to do some research into the reactor, and I was working with some colleagues uh, at Vanderbilt University, Steve Cron and, and some others, and um, they were studying to basically figure out how to do, how to take these advanced reactors through steps in, in uh, preliminary safety analysis, things like that. Anyway. Uh, I became more and more enamored with technology, and I and uh, as I looked at it, I said, okay, I'm an engineer. I start with something good. Well, my job is to make it better. So I don't necessarily want to go to something brand new. Like I wasn't doing fusion by any stretch, <laughs> but to take something like this fission reactor that was actually designed, built, and operated in the 60s, look at its strengths, build on those, and I just mentioned a few of them, and then look at its weaknesses and see what I could do about that. Well, if you if you know anything about this molten salt, one of its characteristics is it can pretty much escape from most mechanical joints. And it's like, and I'm talking about things like flanges, valves, pumps, pump seals, and things like that. So to get around those kinds of things. In, my, in the design that uh, the molten salt nuclear battery, which is the, the focus of our design, 
at micronuclear. Uh, we've eliminated pumps, so the flow is a natural circulation, and uh, we actually had to invent a low temperature, low pressure. So if you if you have nuclear news or go to my go to the website, you'll connect to a, an article that we did on some testing for the natural circulation. And the importance of that is we were able to do the natural circulation ver- validation of, of at the 50 degree delta T and match that up with the computational fluid mechanics and thermal hydraulic codes that we were using that were uh, that are now coupled to neutronics. So what it did is it saved probably $50 million to not have to do that thermal hydraulic validation with uh, in a radioactive environment. So it was a huge step forward for us. So we have a lot of confidence now in, in the flow, which is pretty much the, the trickiest part of the, the physics and the kinetics uh, are, are fairly well understood and well calculated. Uh, the thermal hydraulics are, are uh, you know, especially in a, in a non-force circulation mode, are, can be tricky. Um, so uh, it, it continues to show promise. We just last week we had a, a briefing from some folks at Argonne National Lab that uh, built a fully coupled thermal hydraulic kinetic model with uh, neutrons, neutron kinetics attached. And they did a total system, and I may be adding this to the website soon. I have to look look closely at it. But the upshot is they did a full basic uh, system blackout, no power to the system. You yeah. basically lose lose all power, and you can walk away. So what happens to the reactor and the core temperature and everything associated with it? Essentially, with this design, it's extremely safe. So. Uh, we keep getting validation, and we keep making steps and progress moving forward with this uh, design. And uh, yes. we also find that its its simplicity lends itself to reliability, also lends itself to adaptability. So we uh, we actually uh, saw a request for a proposal from NASA that we submitted for for some funding, and they were looking to put a, a fission surface power source on the moon that they could then retrofit to take to Mars. So we submitted a proposal for that. So the design, and I think that was a four, 40 kilowatt unit, so very small, but just showed that we could actually put the the, the MSNB on a, on a serious diet and, and make some different changes to configurations. There's some latitudes that we had that we don't have on Earth, but there was also some things that we that some additional constraints, like it's on the moon. Um, kind of thing, and it's got a launch and a rocket <laughs> tough, kind tough of thing. Tough to service right? it and, uh, and get a bunch yeah. of replacement parts if it's on the moon, right? Right. Well, so that, not, that's, having, uh, not having pumps, not having valves, and all those kinds of simplifications right. make it something to look at from a reliability standpoint. Well, that's a phenomenal um, deep dive. I've got tons of tons of questions that I'll, I'll dive into, so we'll, we'll kind of take a shotgun approach with this. But, yeah, your company, Micronuclear LLC, you guys are designing – a small modular reactor that, or micro reactor that you guys characterize as a micro battery or a nuclear battery, um, mm-hmm. utilizing a fundamentally different fuel and coolant combination that hasn't been commercialized historically in the U.S., but um, has been attempted elsewhere and has been proven to be feasible. Both, I mean, as late as or as long ago as the '60s, right? And that was kind of your thesis and project. Yeah. That putting that all together, right? And you listed some of the technical advantages from the 
uh, molten salt design versus the traditional light water reactor design. So if anyone in the audience isn't familiar with these things, um, there's a bunch of great resources, resources online. If you just Google light water reactor versus molten salt reactor, t- tons of great information. Um, and Paul outlined many of the uh, in- incredible attributes that make the molten salt design uh, better in a lot of ways, right? So. Let's, so let's dive in a little bit. Uh, are you guys still at the concept phase with uh, your project or you're applying for funding elsewhere? What's, uh, how, how long have you yeah, been working well, on this and what's kind of the. Right. Yeah. So, uh, we, we have had some support from the uh, Department of Energy in two areas, the GAIN okay. program. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, but it's been a great initiative and we were able to get started with that. Right. That's the gateway for advanced innovation in nuclear, right? Yes. So, yeah. And it's a voucher type system so that there's no uh, money changing hands, but there's like kind of, I, I'd put in hours to match and, and matching hours and, and me and co- other colleagues as well. Gotcha. Uh, so that was a great program. And we were, uh, I mentioned the, uh, the work we're doing at Argonne National Laboratory with this transient model, which, saw, which will allow us to do accident analysis for safety, uh, for a safety analysis. Uh, that was uh, provided by, I think we had two different uh, go-rounds of, of hours from uh, the ENRIC program, which is the National um, Reactor Innovation Center that is was stood up a few years back up at INL. So there are, at, there are uh, places to get funding. Um, the unfortunate part about being a startup is no one knows you. There's uh, potentially high risk. So if oh, hey, Paul, we're, we're helping to change that, right? Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so during the proposals we put together, we applied to the ARC for the ARC awards. We're not successful. If you look at our organizational structure, there's folks that are associated directly with micronuclear. It's a small, small startup, as I mentioned. But we, uh, it takes a, it takes a village, honestly, to design a reactor in in and I don't know if it's any big surprise, but uh, there aren't that many folks that actually study nuclear engineering. And so not only that, but there's certain aspects and areas specific to different different study areas uh, that require expertise that you have to identify a specific individual or a few individuals that are capable of doing it. So some of those are in national labs. Some of those folks are in academia. Some of those folks are in um, industry. And we put together a team to approach this problem. So the plan is to design a small reactor based on the, the geometries that we have for the, uh, the MSND. Test that at scale. At I think the scale we were looking at originally was about 400 kW, so it's not huge. But it turns out that uh, for, with the same geometry, we can pretty much get the power to around 200 megawatts from there. But wow. anyways, yeah, we, we limited the size of it so it would fit in the zipper facility up at, at uh, INL. And, um, and how big is that facility? Is that just a, a big room the size of a gymnasium, or is it a small I room? Think, at- yeah, if you, the website, I think, has some photos of the MSNB with its scale actually superimposed with inside the uh, the zipper facility itself. We gotcha. were able to pull that off. Yeah. So if you look at the, the reactor itself, just to give people a spatial reference, um, you could consider it's about a, a total reactor is going to be a few meters tall by a, 
a few meters in diameter, so it's not huge. And, uh, and that's just the reactor component or the component that's providing heat, right? Not necessarily yeah, the, that's the heat source. Not necessarily the generator or any, anything else associated with producing power or electricity. Right. Right. right, right, and and the concept is with the with the now that you have a heat source that can have output in the range of six seven hundred degrees C, you not only have uh, you know the potential for high efficiencies from a, a Brayton or a gas gas turbine cycle gas compressor turbine cycle, but you start to marry the the uh, blowdown to either a ranking system or which is a steam powered system or a hydrogen generation. Now the, the hybrid aspects of, of the balance of plant start to provide all kinds of alternatives for right. uh, different markets. For designing your power plant, how you actually build it. Yeah. Okay. And I just wanted to clarify one acronym that you had mentioned, but you, you call it your guys MSMB. I assume that's molten salt nuclear battery. Correct. And so it, I, I just wanted to be clear, the concept, there are some folks that are talking about different kinds of batteries. So I coined the phrase because the reactor, the concept behind the reactor was it goes in place, it runs for 10 years, and, and maybe it has an, alter, an alternating uh, bunker system. So one reactor goes in there, burns for 10 years without refueling. You let it, you shut it down, let it cool down, you're you're running an alter, the alternate reactor, and then you take that unit and you bring it back and you reprocess. So one of the big things with microreactors, and I was talking to the NNSA folks about this uh, just this just this week. But so from a safeguards perspective, safety, security, safeguards, all those things, we are. I mean, at ten, at ten to twenty megawatts. We're not, you know, so the, the AP-1000 is a 1,000 megawatts, all right? Yeah. So we're not talking about four or 500 facilities throughout the globe. We, we are literally talking about tens of thousands of these things. So right. we're going we're gonna to have to get How do you that. make sure that people don't get their hands on material that can be used to make weapons? Right. right? And that's one thing. But the other part of it is, is it really responsible to think that you're going to do what we've done with light water reactors? And that is to send the fuel to the reactor, run this reactor for 60 years, park the spent fuel, which still contains 95 percent of the uranium that was shipped there in the first place and park it in up in, in, in position it in a parking lot and let it sit there for a while. Now, I don't. I don't have a problem with it from a safety point of view. That's not what I'm saying. But we have a 100 of those in this country. If we had 50,000 of them, that wouldn't be a good plan. So we started with that end point in mind that there's no – and the molten salt reactor has the capability to to be in a small unit, brought back for reprocessing, recover that 95% of the uranium. And guess what, folks? You don't get something for nothing, so there is some waste. But if you – I think if you were to look at the waste over in, in, in the radioactivity of the waste is high. There's no doubt. But over time, that energy level does dissipate because, you know, the second, because thermodynamics exists right. even for radiological things. And, um, over time, the, uh, the, the hazards associated with that waste go away. Yeah. So, but also the, the quantity is, of the waste and the volume of the waste is so much lower than any other energy generation technique that it's it's a non-issue in my mind right right exactly and i think that it really it really uh resonates with folks 
when I can take, if you've ever been to a power plant, say a coal-fired power plant, and look at just the ash, and that's just 15% of the coal that's still sitting there, 15% of all the coal that landed there is sitting there in ash. The rest of the waste is in the air. Thank you very much. Yeah. We're, we distributed it everywhere. So that's not a good plan either necessarily, yeah. but. I've, uh, I've worked underground in a coal mine and I've taken, or I've worked on the railroad that took coal from the mine to the power plant. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of material that gets moved and it's nuclear is de minimis in the amount comparatively. So 100% with you. So I, I, um, I'll take, I'll take any opportunity I can to try to educate people on what that means. But I mean, the thought of having 60 years worth of your, your spent materials, not even waste. Well, in the form, it's pretty difficult to recycle cost-wise. But, you know, one of the things about molten salt reactors is we're able to melt that stuff and recover the fuel. So, yeah, fascinating. Um, would you guys' reactor design then be able to be plugged in um, into, like, a, an existing light water reactor design or um, perhaps, like, a coal plant conversion? Would those be potential applications that you could envision? Yeah, I think you got to be careful about uh, mixing. Um, so the commercial reactors, uh, let's say uh, if we're not talking about like the new scale SMR, if we're talking about a commercial reactor, this this micro reactor is not gonna. That it's like the not tail the right wagon, uh, Yeah, ain't gonna. Yeah. So the point is, those things are designed to come up, come up to power, and sit there. Well. From my background, that's, that's, that's no dice. You, you, you can't start a, a submarine, get it to, you know, whatever power level and keep it there for 30 years. That is not, that's not a good plan. Um, so, uh, you know, load, people talk about load following, that kind of thing. Uh, I just mentioned that total station blackout transient. That's where, right. that's, the, that's the mark we're trying to hit. So if we, if we have a total shutdown in, I think it was over, uh, the ramp it was, it was, it wasn't exactly instantaneous step, but it was 10 seconds. That's pretty much instantaneous. Um, and, and to survive that, this reactor, uh, it, power, the, the power level of the reactor is a, is a strong function of the load that's extracted. It's got a strong, uh, temperature coefficient, which is the self-regulating, um, neutronics. Primarily, okay. um, so that means the hotter it gets, the uh, less it reacts. And is, is there a vice versa to that? The colder it gets, the more it reacts. And yes, does it which wanna, is why the power want to stay balanced. Up. Yeah, which nice. is so. What happens is the if you can think about it, moving the control drive elements changes the average temperature in the reactor, but actually the delta T is going to be a function of the load you're removing or the, the energy you're extracting. If you're not extracting any load, your delta T goes to zero, you see. And not only that, but in our design, delta T is what drives the flow in the primary side. So wrap your brain around that one, and the flow is what drives the fresh fuel back up into the core. So uh, what happens is if you have station blackout, you lose your cooling. What happens is the flow kind of stalls out but the temperature in the reactor core heats up, reactivity goes down, reactor power goes down, and it just sits there. Nice. Cools down. Yeah, it's nice. Okay, so you, t you mentioned your timeline uh, briefly, and then we, we got distracted, but you, you mentioned a year and a half timing, and you're looking at yeah, testing an INL. And 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're so we're year and a half, year to year and a half finalizing the design. So okay. the projects that we're proposing on now are in uh, in the range of one to two years, in which will finalize the design of the 400 kW one and also uh, put us on the road with what we learned from that and building the digital twin towards obviously uh, commercialization. Now, when I talk commercialization, I'm not talking about NRC commercialization per se. I'm talking about the full-scale unit that's going to be tested on a most likely a uh, DOE or DOD site. So the idea there being, I'm an empirical guy. I learned that from Admiral Rick over, right? It's great to have things on paper. You can talk about stuff on paper all day long and argue about it until somebody builds something and the thing is sitting there and running. Um, we're not going to really know everything about it. So that's the best way to learn. So the test is one thing, but having the reactor there running, getting comfortable with it, understanding more about it in real terms, real time scale uh, is the way to educate folks, at least from my experience on what this thing can and can't do. Let people see it, share the data, whatever. And then from there, I think we have a vector for uh, commercialization for um, uh, more more of commercial use. But gotcha. the number of opportunities in terms of market go for even microreactors being deployed in, in controlled spaces, like I mentioned, uh, are extremely high. So, Huge. yeah, exactly. So it's. And and there's room for people. And so, again, shout out to the young engineers. There's room there's room for growth. And 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 I'll just say this as a mechanical engineer, the nuclear reactor is pretty much one of the most interesting things machines I've ever uh, been around. So uh, it'll keep you intrigued for many years. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Okay, so I'll say it back. Make sure I understand you're you're a year and a half from finishing the design. Um, You're going to. then at that point, sounds like attempt to build a prototype um, and test it in a real uh, U.S. facility, either the de- yes. um, Department of Energy or Department of Defense, but somewhere that's it's easier to test and that um, the government's more okay with than just going out and building it in your backyard. Right. right? So keep it um, small. We're walking before we run. We're right. everyone, we want everyone to be comfortable with this because, you know, we don't want to have some kind of de- – deployment of some disaster i mean that just doesn't right. make any sense we don't want the smaller to it is it makes it cheaper to build right yes exactly so all those attributes uh we use uh we're working with premier technologies in blackfoot foot idaho shout out to the guys down there great very supportive uh of of this project and others um but you know, like minds want to get this thing up and running and going to, to yeah. at least start to make some headway, some positive headway in this area. I feel like we are, but I, I have to keep very positive. We, we are talking to private investors about this, but it's one of those things we have to have somebody that understands that this is the market is. So you say, what's the payback? Well, back to the schedule, we can control the design. I know the engineers that can get the work done. We can put the design together. We can build it. And if we build it, the next question is, who's? how do we get our hands on the uh, the HALU fuel that's going to go into this, that's going to be dissolved into this uh, Flynac salt or whatever, the final mixture of fluoride, lithium, sodium, yeah. uh, potassium salts? Um, 
So that's one thing that the government controls. So let's just put that there. The other one is the authority to actually make something go critical. I would love to have that authority to do it because I would be I would have one of my <laughs> you could be in your backyard doing it right now. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we're limited about who we can inform and how much information we can divulge to people that aren't U.S. citizens. In fact, so it's yeah, and and that's in general for 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 nuclear power. So uh, you know it's. It's kind of like you want to have a startup with everything against you. Okay, you, 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 yeah, I look at Shark Tank. I'm like, $100,000. What? That's okay. After week one, what do we do? And I try to be realistic with, with people, but the, 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 and I finally got to this part, Mark. This, this is where my, my, if I were to say I had a posture, this is it right now. We have the technology. We have the capability. I have the people. I know what to do. We know what to do. Uh, and it's kind of like if the government or the will of the people wants it, it's kind of like the field of dreams. If you know, we can build it. Yeah. But I'm not going to fight city hall. You know, I I've, uh, I have other things I can I can do. I don't need to beat my head against the wall. And I think that unfortunately, in most situations, like in the U.S., people have to feel. The pain of you know yeah. going down these other high prices. gasoline prices, high natural gas prices, uh, spiked natural gas utility bills or electric bills, uh, yeah. terrible. Yeah, yeah. So you say, and, and this is where I say I don't have his book on the shelf. I lend it to somebody, Dr. Curlin, who was the nuclear engineering dean for many years at University of Tennessee. Anyways, he wrote a book to teach people how to compare uh, energy levels because I think. It's to the point now we really seriously have to lay the facts out, the pluses and the minuses of each of these things. And what's happening right now, from what I can see, is in the area of solar and wind. I don't, I'm not against them. I've got some ideas to improve both of them. But the problem is you have to realistically kind of talk about costs and you're going to talk about reliability around them producing yeah. the grid. There's, there's three big things. One, we need a huge transmission grid, and it needs to be reestablished. That's not an insignificant investment. Number it's two, it's almost impossible. I, I think that what you just said might be harder than your nuclear project. Meaning, right? Uh, so number yeah. two, I'm not done, Mark. Number two, <laughs> number two, uh, these things are intermittent, which means that whatever the capacity is, if we say we need 200 or 2,000 megawatts. We really need 4,000 megawatts because we need to yep. be making hay while the sun shines. And then number three is we have to store it. We have to store that excess. If you want to take over the grid, those are the things you have to do. And if you look at the numbers associated with that, it's not 12 cents a kilowatt hour. We're used to 12, 13 cents a kilowatt hour from fossil nuclear mix. The numbers are coming in at 65 plus cents a kilowatt hour, which means a factor yep. of five. Now that in, in layman's terms, that means my 200 a month energy bill is now do the math, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars a month. That is un, untenable, but that's the pain that I think you start. We're, we're, we're talking to people or starting to in other places. I think you see the, I've been on the phone with folks from Germany that, you know, it's, it's, it's not funny, but it's, it's like the, yeah. They, they understand the decisions and the problems that they're now dealing with because of those decisions. 
So, so it sounded like the point you're trying to get across was that the cost benefit, um, the, the potential profit or return on investment like this is not cut and dry up front, meaning, you know, to present a model that says that you know exactly how much money you're going to make in five, 10, 20 years, um, wouldn't have a high level of certainty, but just the fundamentals of the energy system and the fundamentals of the physics behind your guys' technology um, lends itself very, very well to setting yourself up for, to be hyper successful in the future once we, once society demands to transition to a clean energy source that's carbon free. That's right. And that's that, pretty much, that's it. Pretty much it in a nutshell, Mark, you know, and, 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 and I don't try to, te- I don't try to, argue people with politics. I don't try to frighten people. I don't try, I try to prevent, provide facts. And, um, you know, I, I think we should really super examine what happened in Chernobyl. If you really think all reactors are like that, I mean, anyone, uh, you know, obviously I'm a reactor, so just, I know how that goes. It just, de- yeah. yeah, it just demonstrates ignorance, right? If they say, well, if anyone says, what about Chernobyl? And you say, well, not a single one of those reactors exists in the U.S. That's commercial in commercial use, and they're fundamentally very different, along with many of the designs that are being proposed now. Yeah, so funny story about that. The Russians never really sold that reactor outside its its own block countries. So oh, that design I mean, they're using it to make plutonium for bombs, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not get into that. But um, yeah, so. Uh, so we, we covered the getting real about waste, getting real about impact, the second law of thermodynamics, getting real about costs, and uh, getting getting real about the risks associated with, with radiation. I mean, um, it's scary. You know, everyone's afraid they're going to get turned into Iron Man or something like that. You know, I, I, I love uh, Black Sabbath, but it's just, you know, through through some unfortunate events that did involve overexposures to uh, radioactive sources, we know what those particles do exactly. We know how to shield them. We know what to do with them. Um, it's almost like having multiple layers of absolute failure is what it takes to have an unsafe condition, and one was a, a, a very poor design and, and an unstable condition at Chernobyl. Fukushima was a uh, was a Mark One GE, right? Uh, their first one, and, and the, there wasn't any oversight in the country, and there were some changes made to the thing that just caused a, a bad situation to get worse. So, you know, I think we're in a position to actually. People say, "Is it safe?" I'm like, "There's." 400 plus of these things around the world. France is reinstalling, is retooling all of theirs. There isn't a good option out there. And if there was a better option, I would be talking about it um, in in the near term. So is it great that my design is really cool and and I like it and and a lot of other people? So the group that we had on some of these proposals was as large as 55, 60 people, which uh, is a little bit, scary sometimes it's like wow if those guys ever want to get paid i'm in trouble but <laughs> you know so there's there's yeah. people with enough commitment and enough passion about wanting to make this happen um uh, and, and i think that we're at a point where if people are given the choices without the emotion i think that they'll settle down and make some make make the right call 
And so uh, you, you touched on radiophobia a little bit, and I'll I'll characterize it that way. But I, I do think this is something that the industry and the regulator almost has like a negative feedback loop on. Um, so I'll ask kind of a might be a tough question, um, but how how does the micro reactor um, startups like you and, and the SMR designers and even the broader energy industry and I'm thinking outside of nuclear also you know other other people that are interested in it but want to dispel this problem of radiophobia that's really a minuscule problem compared to anything else how how do we approach that problem to potentially um, loosen up on some of the regulations uh, and and make it easier for people yeah. to design and innovate and and for you to do your job in building these incredible new machines. Right. And I think a lot has to do with uh, when I was back in pulp and paper, I was at a paper mill and I was the environmental manager and I had a lot of people that were pushing back on the big bad paper mill. So what I started doing is, is inviting college students over and giving them tours of the facility so they could see the wood coming in one end and the paper that they were using in their xerographic copy machines on the other and, and the processes that went on in between and the amount of recycling that was going on internally in that crowd process. I think we have the, to do this. We need the same approach, but to do it, we need to have them. And people need to have access to see it. And, 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 you know, I've stood on top of a nuclear reactor with uh, lead shielding, and, and it was one we were doing work on. Was I afraid? No. Um, to me, probably more if, my, it was, if it was a tall spacer, you might be afraid of heights, right? Like. <laughs> exactly. But to me, once you understand the complexity of things, uh, the, what do you got? Alpha particles, beta particles, gamma particles, and, and the energy ranges of those things. I hate to act like a physicist, but that's it. That's all yeah. there is. And we've, we've been from one extreme to the other of knowing what that can do to us and in human beings. Uh, any chemical outside or even water. I mean, the complexities associated with biology and chemicals. I'll take the radioactive particles any day of the week to understand and be very clear about what they can and cannot do. Our problem is we haven't done a good job of explaining that to people. So excess communication and um, ed- education with the public and the, the regulator. That's- yeah, I'll give you an example. Go out on the street and ask people if we're if they know that we're building new reactors right now. Uh, no one does. 90- no one does. That is a yeah. huge travesty. I mean, but they do. If they do know about it, they know about it because of the costs associated. That's a whole that yeah. driver. We're going to attack that too. Yeah. Uh, you know that they that's a that's a a, a a system that was a little bit too out of control um, in terms Meaning of the latest Vogel reactors that are being built in yeah, um, yeah. south. Of, yeah. People throw around the term economies of scale, right? right? So actually beyond a boundary layer thickness, economies of scale are, are more or less moot, and, to, and you're going to build something that's big enough that you can't build. That's a wonderful concept. So, again, it comes down to somebody looked at that on, the, on paper, and it looked great. But then no one said, how's a guy going to get that pig stinger back there to weld this? Or how's that – where are we going to find a forge big enough to make uh, a vessel that's 23 inches thick or however thick it is? 
but you guys have the opposite approach, which is economy of volume. And I loved what you said earlier, being an empirical guy, I would economy of experience, right? Where you become yeah. more efficient and effective at building things, the more that you build them. And you got to start somewhere with going right. to build. So if you've ever been to a place where they have antique uh, four cycle engines, right? The old farmers with ah, the pulleys. The, right. Yeah. That doesn't look anything like you pop the hood of a very sophisticated uh, internal combustion engine. I'm talking about a Honda Civic. They have that. Those guys have internal combustion engines down to a science. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Give us the liberty to go through the first few steps before you, you know. Uh, so everyone wants wants the Honda Civic perfection right out of the gate. I'm the one to tell you that is not going to happen. And the way you learn is through that experiential. You because you can do all the codes and CFD. It's great, pretty pictures. At some point, you got to build something. Paul, your uh, thesis and your approach to this problem is nearly identical to mine. <laughs> so I, I love it. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, very, very, very exciting stuff. Um, Anything else that you'd like to say on the MSNR? I, you know, I, I love that you guys are doing the load following with, um, so that in, in the event that you need to follow renewables in an area that already has renewables deployed, um, is capable of doing that. Um, yeah. Anything else on the technology specifically? Well, the, the part about this uh, connection or the capacity to the co-gen with the hydrogen is really exciting. Because okay. now so thinking about way of creating hydrogen as an energy right. storage technique. Yes. Okay. So uh, in a deployment so that you could actually have regional hydrogen generating sites that are distributing hydrogen to trucks, cars and things like that. So you, you're not you, again, you're you're not reliant on this, which I really fear is the grid. So we have this local distribution of not only power, but, but this heat source that can now be deployed distribute in a distributed fashion to support hydrogen generation, that's an amazing thing. Right, right. That is super cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, Paul, we're coming up on our time, and I, I want to be cognizant of your time, but I also want to get to some of the questions we ask all of our guests. Um, sure. So what's, uh, what's one thing about energy or the energy industry that scares you or keeps you up at night? Um, I used to really, because uh, as you could tell, I'm a little bit passionate about trying to convince people of the of the path. And ah, you uh, and I, birds of a feather, <laughs> right? And and I think my my latest uh, epiphany is to just not get not do that to uh, to actually when people come for answers, you can give them information or let them seek out the answers for themselves. The only problem that I see with that is that there's a whole lot of misinformation out there. And um, I think that certain industries have used people's emotions against nuclear power. And now that those industries are being shut down because of the high CO2 concentrations or whatever, uh, you know, I think there are, you're going to see some of those folks from the fossil industry pivoting to saying, you know what, this nuclear stuff's really not a bad idea, especially if we can use it to generate hydrogen, which, oh, by the way, looks a lot like what we used to distribute in uh, to cars and trucks and things like that. 
So, uh, but no, none of this keeps me up at night. I think we have a lot of the answers. We, uh, we do a lot with very minimal, um, funding. And, um, you know, I don't, that does, doesn't keep me up at night. I just, I just hope that people make the right decisions because I think we're going to be spending a lot of money and resources on things like wind and solar that we know we can do. We know we can spend a bunch of money, but I think that the same emotions that people are seem to be comfortable with that are not looking at at things as aggressively or as with the sensitivity that they look at nuclear energy. And if they did, they'd find out, hey, there's some big gaps here, like the three yeah. big ones that I mentioned. Yeah, 100%. Um, what advice do you have for young professionals in the energy space? You already gave uh, some advice at the onset, but what else? Yeah, and it's uh, if you if you're a technical person, um, the, the nuclear power is very interesting. I, I, would I tell you to go into it right now? Well, you know, there's there are some opportunities out there. People do have some funding, but uh, in my mind, I would learn the engineering trade if you're a technical person, and then you could always learn a new set of keywords and tricky phrases, as I say, and and you're back in the fold. But keep keep the pulse. But we're looking for this pivot, right? We're looking for people just like. Just like people look the other way at the cell tower. Why do they do that? Because they're ugly. The cell towers are ugly, but people look the other way because they really love their cell phones and they know they need them to make it work. It's kind yeah. of the same thing. Okay. Yeah. And then leave, leave us on a positive note. Where do you see this going? We're in the near and uh, distant future. There's a lot of deep pockets out there beyond the the federal folks in, in the programs there. So that's that's really kind of what we're looking at right now. So in the scheme of things, we can, like I said, we can control, we can, we know what the costs are of getting this thing designed over the course of, of two years. Uh, the government has got to be the, you know, the controller of, of the other part of the market, the fuel and, and where we're going to put it. That has to happen. So, and that gets driven by people. Great. Paul, thanks so much. We really appreciate your insight. And can't, can't wait to learn more. Excited uh, to see where you guys go. Great, thanks a lot.